The Open Nesters is a weekly podcast focusing on couples and individuals who are looking for new beginnings after their kids have left the nest. This week on the Open Nesters podcast with end-of-life doula and filmmaker Karen Ballone. There's no better time than the present to embark upon approaching a conversation with oneself about death so that you can learn to live more fully while you're here. That's For me, that's the bottom line. That's what I learned by becoming a doula. The time that I spend in this work is the most joyful and fulfilling work that I've ever been involved in in my life. Today we welcome end-of-life doula, Karen Ballone to a unique interview that you will all and we all learn so much from. Let's hear it from Karen Ballone. Welcome to the Open Nesters podcast, Karen Ballone of the Seventh Sense. Welcome. Thank you. You're, you're many more than that. You're, you're a filmmaker, you're a mom. You have so much depth to what we've only touched upon and... I'm really excited to have this conversation about you, your end of life doula work and looking at our somatic <clears throat> and senses and embodiment in ways that elevate us beyond what we naturally feel in our just limited five senses. <laughs> well, thanks for having me here, Tessa. It's, it's an honor. It's great to be able to speak to um, an, an audience of, of any variety and try to open up a, a new way of, of looking at things, new way of perceiving, a new way of interacting with our world. Thank you. Well, that's what death can give us, just like birth. And it's one of the things I just read one of your blogs from one of my favorite songs of Leonard Cohen anthem of uh, crack when just so it goes um, ring the bell it's st that still can ring, forget the perfect offering. There's a crack, a crack in everything. And that's how the light gets in. Yeah. Gives me chills. You I know. know it's one of my all time because when we feel that crack in the world, which is so apparent to us now, you know, how, how can we look at which many doulas are birth doulas. Many people have never heard of an end of life doula. So, I mean, I, I'm going to go backtrack a bit just to start with your personal story for you to tell us your kids, what you've come to, how you've come to this place you are now. I have been a filmmaker my um, entire working life, uh, 40 years, I guess now. And I have one child, one daughter, and I how waited. Old, how old? My daughter's about to be 24 in a few days. I waited until I was 39 before I had a child. So I was um, already pretty much steeped into my existence in this world and went through the I don't want to have a child to I absolutely must have a child and uh, forever grateful that I am a parent because I don't think I learned much of anything until I became a parent is the truth of it. Is such a beautiful statement just for any open nester because just the reflection of the nuance, how we appreciate things is a, such an important place to start. Like, what did we learn? What are we learning? And what is this next generation here to teach us, especially our own through, through their love, through their disconnect, through their, you know, their angst, through, <clears throat> through all of it. 
you came in as a filmmaker to this end of life work. So tell, tell us about that. I know you yes, lost your I mom am young. About, uh, yeah, I lost my mother when I was 29, which was far too young. Her death, as well as other significant deaths early in my life, they, they stuck with me in the sense, oh, so many levels, of course, of that, um, of the loss and grief, which is a whole other topic unto itself. But the reality also of, and I think anyone who has been there to bear witness to a loved one dying, you do have regrets sometimes, or you have remorse of why didn't I do this? Or why didn't I know that? And those kind of nagging small, little, but insidious questions really stuck with me with each death that I experienced. Because as you said, there are many parallels between birth and death. And we, we celebrate birth, but we fear death. And this is a lot of the work that has <clears throat> really encouraged me and inspired me to become an end of life worker is to help uh, break that down, to demystify death and to assuage the fear so we can bring our best and most authentic selves to not only our own impending death, which we will have to deal with at some point, but also to be there and present in the way we want to be when we are with those we love who are passing. So as a filmmaker, I, I had always been very interested throughout my career about the power of the medium in terms of changing consciousness. I think the power of image and sound and the synergy of those two things is an incredibly powerful tool, which is used and misused in many ways, but I contend and I believe that it can be used in all of these very healing ways too. So that was my first thought was I wanted to create tools to die a better death, basically. And um, I went down a wormhole navigating, well, what is, you know, end of life work in general? What is it about? And, you know, music thanatology. There's, there's so many subcultures involved in end of life work, and they're all more beautiful than the next. And I think once you start looking into it, it's, it's really quite, it's very beautiful. It really makes you look at death as a, a completion on some level or an entryway into another experience that we may not know anything about, but it's the greatest mystery of all. And we don't want to lose that in our lives by just concentrating on the fear. And so that, that was the beginning of it. And, um, I had attended, um, there are several very brilliant workshops and seminars in the world. Uh, the Open Center uh, in connection with Tibet House um, does um, an Art of Dying Institute. And every year um, they, they have a seminar in New York for several days. <clears throat> Robert Thurman, who is a, a preeminent Tibetan Buddhist scholar, uh, he really talked a lot about that, about how can we help what can we create? What tools can we make to help people die? Especially he was talking about with young children when they have terminal diagnosis, how he wanted to show them scenes from 2001, A Space Odyssey, so that he could give them the opportunity to allow their imaginations to fly, to embrace what death could be for them so that they could get out of this very uh, claustrophobic mindset that we have 
in our culture. Um, and that was the beginning of me really thinking about creating tools. And then I found um, the organization INELDA, which um, is the International End of Life Doula Association. And I studied with them and became certified by them. And um, the man who started that organization, Henry Fursco Weiss, I found him to be a really wonderful uh, mentor uh, and teacher. And um, that was the beginning of my springboard into becoming a doula. Of course, you know, nobody can teach you these things. You can learn skills, but it's uh, really on the job training that that really does teach you how to uh, approach the work more than anything. So what were some of the events and, and transitions and, and rituals that, and, and, and people that you think you learned the most from as you began doing this kind of work? I recently was profiled by Inelda and um, I had to answer a series of questions and it did ask me about my, my teachers and my mentors. And of course, there are many. Um, Henry, as I mentioned, um, Irene Smith, who is a, a, um, a masseuse who uh, has been working in hospice for many, many years. And she, she talks about the power of touch. Not only does she talk about it, but she proves the power of touch. Ram Das, uh, you know, there are, there are so many teachers, right? But my biggest teachers have been every, every life, both human and animal, that I have borne witness to in the transition of death. These are the greatest gifts. There is a magical state, actually, no matter how painful it is for us to think about losing our loved ones, if we open ourselves up to the beauty of the transition, there's an incredible power, just like birth, that we, we know we're in the face of mystery and something greater than ourselves. And we accept that with birth. With death, we push it away. Once you allow yourself to open up to that process, the gifts are multifold. And I do feel like everyone that has passed, that I have been with, I feel then they are by my side, working with me, guiding me when I am now with the next person who is transitioning. So there's, there's a lot of crossover between worlds. And, you know, it's, it's not, um, it's ethereal, but it's not airy fairy. It's, it's not, not true. <laughs> you know, we all have different belief systems. This has nothing to do with religion. If you're an atheist, maybe it doesn't necessarily intellectually work for you, the idea of an afterlife. But if you work with death, I think you become a believer in the true mystery of the not knowing. We, we think we have an idea of what this life is about and we hold on to control very desperately. But the more you let go of control, the more you realize that that there is a greater story to be told. We may not be able to understand it or know it all in this lifetime, but we are part of it. And death is part of that as well. It's almost like I felt the sense of comfort and expanded love from, as you spoke about this mystical time. Uh, and it's, it's something that most of us, I have actually experienced it a bit myself with my mom when she passed and even with my father-in-law by being open to the fact that 
that we we can't possibly name these things and we have and we need to have a bigger faith in and trust in something that is greater than ourselves and in these particular times we're living with so much uncertainty that there's so much to learn from this that you've been writing about in some of your blogs and and if you'd like to talk about you know COVID or people that you've talked to or been teaching or or how that's affected you or yeah, let's start with that. Well, let's... COVID, it's very interesting how COVID, I think, you know, um, like all things in life, nothing is ever good or bad. It's can hold both things simultaneously. COVID has been a very um, disturbing and difficult time for a lot of people. But it's also, I believe, made us hyper aware of our mortality and about the power of loss and grief. And um, people are asking more questions now about these things. And also considering the fragility of life and the preciousness of what we do have when we are alive that we may take for granted. So I think consciousness has been opened up a little bit due to COVID. So I see that as a very positive aspect of something that has obviously created an enormous amount of pain and suffering and untold deaths. But these are the truths of our lives that we really shouldn't try to avoid. And the one thing that in my own personal teaching, I really look to instill in people, not just this is how you can work with death or bear witness to end of life. But how does that backtrack into our lives once we come to these awarenesses of self? When we do not spend so much time fighting off the inevitable truth of mortality, how can that enrich our lives now. So I really am a proponent of addressing these issues as early in life as possible. And it's interesting because talking about generational issues, I find especially women of a certain age, millennials, Gen Zers, have a very, very, very different attitude towards death than boomers do. And I find this fascinating. I, mean, I think it's a function of them growing up in the world that we live in today with all of our environmental challenges, a sense of, I think there's a very, you know, there's an apocalyptic sense in the world and that's been growing. And, you know, we're sitting on top of a, um, a nuclear scare, which is probably greater than any in our own lifetime, which, you know, we're not really talking about in the same way that we did in the 60s when it seemed like, well, this could be the end of the world. It doesn't seem to be being discussed in that same way. Yet that power, that underlying subtext is still there for everyone. So I think it's pushing people to consciousness raising in many, many ways in the deepest questions of our humanity and um, and these are good things. We we should be looking this way. We're, oh, we're, many we're... many millennials are, as we know, in all the in all the media, and I know from our own my own kids, are not choosing to have children, 
And to me, that's the biggest testament to the fact that they are somewhat clear and many of them definitive um, about that birth is not worth it at this time. So we can look at this with sadness and we can look at it also with curiosity, which is how I try to lead my my life and my questions. And and it sounds like just you listening to them, millennials and Gen Zers is 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 hearing them differently. And so even with your own daughter, how how is that discussion around around death or has she experienced it or does she have any inquiry into what you're doing with that? My daughter is um, inherently a very spiritual person, um, very wise person. She came into the world. Oh, she's texting me right now. (laughs) She came into the world with a certain amount of inherent wisdom, um, which is a beautiful thing, having nothing to do with me. She follows my work very with great interest, uh, which is more than I can say she ever did with my life as, as a visual artist. I don't think she was really that all that interested in that, but she's very interested in the end of life work. And we have a plan to um, sit down and do our advanced death care directives together, which there's a little booklet that comes from, uh, there's a, a wonderful uh, doula in Los Angeles named Olivia Barham, and she has an organization called Sacred Crossings. She does um, <clears throat> green burials and um, and natural funerals. And uh, at, she's a funeral celebrant and a chaplain and a doula. And she uh, actually publishes this advanced de- death care directive booklet. Um, which is a wonderful thing to do uh, with your family, young and old, where everyone ends up knowing, and you yourself ask these questions of yourself, you write them down so that you have an idea of what it is that you would like. And it's not about uh, your legacy financially. That's one aspect, and people seem to know a lot about that. But people don't think about what do I want my last days to feel like if I, if I have that type of death where I am lingering in some way? How do I want it to feel? What do I want it to look like? Who do I want to be there? What's important to me? Do I want a deathbed playlist? All of these incredible questions that once you put them out on the table, people really get excited actually about it because no one's given us these choices necessarily. Not at no. all. I mean, I said to my kids, because on my life I spend dancing and I love music. I said to my kids at my funeral, I would like you to play music and have make sure at least one song everyone dances to. And then they're like, OK, mom, what song? Like, you know, I think the conversation needs to just be elevated. Like, what is it that we love about our lives that we want to be celebrated at the end? And I've also written ethical wills with some of my besties. Like we've done a lot of that kind of work and journaling together. And, and I do feel like, how do we convey it to our kids at the right time? Sometimes it could be one-on-one, sometimes as a group. And, and everyone feels out there's no right or wrong to even any kind of ritual, which is so interesting. And I wanted to talk to you a little bit about ritual and meaning making, because I do feel like after Elizabeth Kubler-Roth's book about the five stages of grief, there's another, I'm forgetting his de- the gentleman's name, but I know that there's another, the, ma- the meaning of life is really like Viktor Frankl said, it's not about the suffering. Mm-hmm. You know, w- what we really need is, is the meaning for if we are, when we are suffering. So I think- Well, even if, if we're not suffering, I think the existential suffering of just pondering that there will be an end to this life that we are leading 
uh, is enough to send us into despair. Um, and um, there is, um, I don't know if you're familiar with, with Dr. Eric Erickson, but he um, has defined the uh, eight stages of life, the last being ego integrity versus despair. So we are thrust into that moment uh, if we're given a terminal diagnosis or we sense through old age that death is imminent. I mean, I think these are, these are the issues that start to come up in our psyche and even in our bodies, you know, we, we are maybe unaware or they may be unconscious, but these issues start to arise. Did my life have meaning? Did, was I loved? Did I love? Um, these are very deep questions that we tend to avoid um, throughout our waking life and only when we are at that moment where we're at the doorway of staring at our mortality do these issues come up in a way that we can no longer subdue them and these are very important questions and so a lot of end-of-life work does have to do with addressing this stage of our consciousness and awareness and making peace with that could be uh, closure, could be unfinished business, could be regrets. These are all issues that one may choose to look at with much more clarity than ever before in life. We tend to push them off when we're alive and healthy and not thinking about when the end is near. But when we have the awareness that the end is near on whatever level, these things will come home to roost and should be addressed. Uh, for for the the well-being and the pain-free type of transition we would all want to have. If you like this episode, you'll also love other episodes on our website under the Listen tab. Scroll down to our Health, Aging, and Grief category. I think one of, for me personally, one of the things that I did think about consciously uh, when I was studying as a doula was I do not want to have regret when I am laying on my deathbed. I, that, that was a very um, deep awareness for me that whatever I had to work with in order to lose regret for this or that in life, that was the work I wanted to do for myself. And um, I, I do see how significant that is for others as well. You know, a lot, a lot of this is about family as well. You know, I mean, um, we tend to think of death as a medical event, but it's not, it's a family event. And I think that that little shift is a very important one to concentrate on. And even if you don't have family per se, it's our loved ones, it's our circle of influence. It's the Absolutely. people that matter to us. Um, and, you know, there's also the bringing in of opening up the death experience to incorporate children, to incorporate our pets, to incorporate our life, our full life into our death. And also the, what you talk about a lot about, and I love what you wrote about rituals and, and that you, 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 you quote a little bit about Joseph Campbell, but that fact that it's, it helps us reconnect with these internal rhythms that I'm reading from you, from your blog. 
that we've forgotten to listen to in the modern world. And I think that death can offer us kind of that, what you talk to, return to calmness, a sense of self as a sense of belonging to something greater than ourselves. And, and it also takes off some of the stress and the, and the pressure. I know that the rituals that I've done in my home around holidays or weekly on the Sabbath or, or some of the things that maybe the kids didn't know that they were appreciated, but then learned to. And then some of the end of life things that I think we can create some of our own. And I wonder if you have suggestions for how people can start creating rituals for life and creating rituals for death. I think ritual is a beautiful area to discuss. And if you have any thoughts on that. Personally, I've always been attracted to rituals, um, whether it's um, lighting candles every, you know, every dusk um, or um, taking a nightly bath. You know, these are these are simple lifestyle rituals, but they are grounding. And um, it could be, you know, watering your plants every day. It, it could be as simple as taking a walk every day or five minutes of mindfulness every day. What, you know, it, it's, it's the repetition, I think, that allows us and our minds to free themselves from the, the, um, the mundane tasks of our existence, which we tend to get caught up in. It's also, I think, very helpful for people who suffer from anxiety as well to have some physical tasks, i.e. rituals that they do, whether it's to wake up and write in your journal every morning or that really help us to center ourselves within the body. The body is our vessel in this lifetime. And so whatever rituals we can do to ground ourselves within our body and within our senses I think it is, gives us a, a deeper sense of well-being than we might have without them. Um, rituals around death tend to really find themselves from the needs of the dying person. For instance, there was a man that, um, that I was with for, oh, nine months or so, he had Parkinson's. So it was not a fast death um, and, not a, and not an easy decline. I, but um, we both shared a love of Pepsi-Cola. And so every time I would visit with him, I would bring him a Pepsi. Simple, maybe not the healthiest, but it was a bonding thing for us. And then he looked forward to that. You know, he had to, it had to be mixed with his thickening powder and ice because he had a swallowing issue because of the Parkinson's. But I can't tell you what that meant to him. And that opened up a window of trust with me um, and comfort. That was the beginning of our dialogue. Over time, that just continued and he came to count on it, you know, um, so, you know, rituals can be much deeper, obviously. Um, I was going to say that even, even laughing with someone is a close connector to them. It's, it can be the, the littlest things, but then we, a daily joke, or, or it could be something that is, is, it seems so simple. Right. I mean, you know, Pepsi Coke is Pepsi Cola is simple. Sometimes it's just the simplest things that build trust in life. And then towards this idea of the fact that, Someone's going to pass, but maybe they're doing it with more 
trust in the people around them. And I think who surrounds you is is a big part of that, like creating what you want, what you want to be surrounded by. And that we have to do in our life. Like we have to do that in our lives. Absolutely. That that's what I believe as well, Tessa. I think um, a lot of what I try to think about is comfort. So that can be about pain. That can be about physical pain. It can be about existential pain. It can be about emotional pain. So what rituals can we devise, build, create, and work and build upon over time that will bring further comfort to the person? And also by extension to the people that they love who are in distress of their own variety because we don't even think about anticipatory grief, but when we know we're losing someone we love, we're already grieving. And these are issues that can also be worked out during the transition period for those that are left behind. So as an end-of-life doula, do you also work with those left behind? I do. Um, Basically, uh, in my training, we learn about reprocessing during bereavement. So I will work with a family or loved ones for as long as they would want to work with me um, after the passing of a loved one. Um, Often I will get together with them on an anniversary of the death or we'll meet at the cemetery or we'll have a ritual of some sort, even if it's over Zoom, so that we keep that alive. Or even if we don't have anything like that, a text just to say, Hey, thinking of you, I know what day it is today. You know, it's really about the connections, right? And keeping that connective tissue together. Humankind, um, we, I, I believe that we would do a lot better on this planet if we spent a lot more time thinking about our interconnectivity, both with each other in the human race, with other species, as well as the planet. We are all one thing. We're the life. And we have an ego, so we tend to think about our individuality much more than we think about our connectivity. But I I contend that there's a lot more peace of mind to be gained from investing in the connectivity. And that's not just about working with end of life. That's about life in general. End of life is a factor of life. It wouldn't be there if we weren't alive. So these things have a a, a mutual respect and and a a mutual understanding that we have to remember. I wrote a blog about that word, remember. You know, um, we, we... we live for the moment and for the future. That's how we're, our culture and how we're socialized. But the past is a very strong foundation. And all of these things can come together to create a sense of whole that we might find a lot of comfort in. All body-based as far as I'm concerned. I, th- I think that we, we need to honor the body and that that's a far reaching issue so that it can carry us through this lifetime in the way that we would like it to serve us 
And when this vessel, this body, it's time for it to transition and move on, then we would have a better understanding of that as well. I have started to devise a methodology for myself that is somatic, body-based for my end-of-life doula trainees, but also for anyone who wants to reside within the body with a better understanding and find more life through the senses. I think that this is a reminder of remembering that is very positive for us. Well, it certainly is between what you mentioned in even on your website about the sixth and seventh sense. And I remember years ago, there was the book, The Sixth Sense after the, uh, and the, and this, the other senses are emotional and feeling, but overall they're about intuition and kind of tuning into the right, that, that flow of what is it that we, that, that, that we're experiencing on a greater level than just what we can have the five senses for. So helping people do that is somatic and. Technically, we actually have somewhere between 70 and 80 senses is what I understand, Um, but we have forgotten them. So I think that there's a synergy between the five senses, right? And that is the further senses, the sixth, seventh, eighth, whatever senses beyond the five senses are actually available to us. There is a synergy between the five senses that create this sense of intuition, which we all have experienced in our lives. I don't think there's anyone I've ever met that hasn't had an intuition about something or another. And you know, as a parent, you have a sixth sense about your children. You, You may not be with them, but you know when things are good and you know when things are not so good. Yes. Or, and in most cases, we, we don't want to over worry that. So we have, you know, figuring out the, pull, the, the dance of the push and the pull. So actually I was going to ask about your daughter, if she's with the um, incredible kind of wisdom and ability to, to look at our lives with such re- um, reverence that you have had, how, how did it work for you when she was starting to go out on her own and you became an open nester? How do you, how would you um, say that, that, that transition went for you, Karen? Well, I, um, I was a parent since I was an older parent and I had a career. Um, the, it was at times difficult for me personally as a parent to juggle. I always wanted to be present as a parent. I didn't want to necessarily farm out my caretaking um, to, uh, on a regular basis. I wanted to be around. I wanted to participate in my daughter's upbringing. So it was a little bit difficult for me in certain years. Um, and I had to put my career on hold for quite a while in order to, to be present for my daughter in that way. Where was her father, or if you don't mind me asking? Um, her father and I divorced when she was five. And was he involved? Um, involved? He was, yes, he's always been there as her father. She also has a stepfather. I remarried when, uh, when she was about eight. And um, so she's got two amazing fathers, very different. And that, that's been wonderful for her. I was very much a parent who wanted to encourage my daughter to self-determine um, from a relatively early age. I felt that that was the best way I could be a responsible parent was to not be a hovering helicopter parent, although I was of that generation of parents. Um, and I can't say I wasn't a worrier because I do have that ability, but I, mm-hmm. I always encouraged her to be unique 
to be authentic and to make her own decisions and stand by them, good or bad, so that she could learn her own lessons and learn who she was from those types of decisions. Um, she's a very impressive young woman. Um, I'm, I'm exceedingly proud of her. And um, I think she's an interesting specimen of her generation. She's very opinionated, <laughs> um, very strong-willed, um, very much of an activist in her own right politically, um, studying psychology. That's her, the direction she's going in in her life. Um, working with children specifically is her desire. So um, it remains to be seen. She's a work in progress. And uh, well, mostly I'm asking about your feelings during this stage that she actually needed you less and less just as this. Actually, that works well for me. I, I, uh, I, I appreciated that time. I very much loved being a parent. Um, but what I said in the very beginning I, was a, a revelation to me. I thought you don't have to have a license to do this, to be a parent. You have to have a driver's license, mm -hmm. but the hardest job, the biggest responsibility you'll ever, ever have in your life is to raise a child and nobody tells you how to do that. There are no rules. And I, I just thought that that was, you know, you should have to have a license to do this. <laughs> <laughs> Obviously true. I didn't mean that. I didn't mean that literally, but, but the weight of it, um, until you have a child, I don't think you know what the weight of the responsibility is. And of course, I also was under the false impression that, well, once she's out and on her own, then my job is done. That's also not true. <laughs> <laughs> so um, since I only had one, she, she was my test case. If I had had a, a second or third child, I think um, there certainly were so many things I learned from the first one, that I would have understood more um, coherently than I did the first time around. But as I said earlier, I, I do love that my daughter is independent. That was very important to me uh, because I think that's a survival skill in life. I think you, you must be independent. You can have to rely on yourself and no one else to a large degree in order to have a content life. Um, but at the same time, you know, she's my best friend on so many levels now. And honestly, I think that until I had to put another life before my own, I didn't really understand a lot about life. So I don't know that I would have become an end of life doula had I not become a parent. You know, being an artist can be a very selfish lifestyle. You're serving the muse. And that is a passion that I was born with. You know, I, it wasn't something I chose. It just was part of me. So no matter what my relationships are, and I've had many close, intimate relationships, romantic, collaborative partnerships, work. I, I'm a very collaborative human being. Um, you have to be if you're a filmmaker. <laughs> and um, I really, though, never had my own ego put into check in a certain way before I became a parent. So it was, a, it was, there were many lessons that I learned throughout my years of parenting her as a child 
that were deep life lessons for me, which I'm extremely grateful for. What a real honor to witness. I mean, we can talk, probably do a whole other conversation about the intergenerational work that needs to be done. And yet I feel like we have, you know, we're going to wind down with our time now. So I want to make sure that people know how to reach you. But I also want to ask you if there's anything that you feel is calling to you to make sure people know at this act three of life as they, you know, enter this time that they can celebrate their lives more, but look toward it with, with, you know, more, with more candid coherence of that we are more than just our, some of our parts, for example, to, because you have this beautiful wisdom that you're sharing. Well said. I like what you said, Tessa. We are more than the sum of our parts. Absolutely. I think we are in this moment in human evolution at a moment of quantum shift. And that's not just in technology. That's in our consciousness. This is what we're being called to. From the time that I started working in end-of-life work, I've seen a tidal wave of interest and people training as doulas. And this is a wonderful thing because we need this community. We need to bear witness for one another in whatever way we can. We need to remember what that means in community. And we need to incorporate that into community. As I said earlier, to me, there's no better time than the present to embark upon approaching a conversation with oneself about death so that you can learn to live more fully while you're here. That's for me, that's the bottom line. That's what I learned by becoming a doula. The time that I spend in this work is the most joyful and fulfilling work that I've ever been involved in in my life. Um, and I encourage people to wake up to their own life and embrace the fullness of our existence so that when our time does come, we will know that we've lived the lives that we have wanted to lead. What a beautiful message. So, so right on and, and so important for everyone to really accept and receive. And that's what we're not always so good at. So thank you for helping us open that little crack so that the light can get in. Um, and how can people reach you if you want to say it verbally? It'll be in our blog as well, how people can reach you, Karen. They can reach me at my website, uh, The Seventh Sense. That's T-H-E-S-E-V-E-N-T-H-S-E-N-S-E.org, O-R-G. Um, and on my website, there's also a phone number. If you prefer to text me or call me, you can reach me that way as well. And um, I also have another website, which is Exit Strategy for Dying, and that is more of a resource hub for people to go and um, look into all things concerning death from the mundane to the sacred. Um, and hopefully that will help to open up and engage people in a dialogue that they can go down whatever wormhole seems interesting to them. Um, so those are, those are the uh, ways you can reach me in the, in the world. Oh, thank you. Thank you so much for this really precious time. <laughs> really precious. I appreciate and value your work and you. Thank you, Tessa, so much for giving me the opportunity. I greatly appreciate it. It's an honor. Before we summarize this incredible interview with End of Life doula Karen Ballone. 
Here is a clip from our next week episode with Josh and Tammy. But I had a choice to make. Am I going to just split because this hurts? Um, or am I going to stay? And what I found was that there was something powerful about the kind of intimacy that Tammy and I shared um, that I couldn't, that, that was very special to me. And I didn't want to lose it. So I made the mindful choice to try to work through the discomfort that this caused in order to keep this intimate relationship. And what happened was in sitting with discomfort, I began to become, that became a muscle that I exercised. And it, it demystified the idea of sitting with emotional pain for me in a way. And it sort of took the stuffing out of this old blocking dynamic that had, um, that had sort of dogged me since childhood. Honestly, Tessa, I was struggling with the fact of death uh, all the time. I mean, I remember the time that you made me, you actually made me read Tuesday with Murray. I don't know if you remember that. Mm -hmm. And that was uh, very impactful for me at that time. And that was somewhat of a similar situation whereby somebody knows that uh, they're about to pass and they were ready for it and somehow, some way prepared. And, you know, (laughs) just listening to this interview, which you've done an amazing job with bringing the best out of of Karen Ballone, I realize that there's a brand new industry out there, which is uh, this... Funeral celebrate that she called it. Funeral will celebrate is one of the items she mentioned. Yes, exactly. I I would. But the entire thing is is just fascinating to me. I mean, it's interesting. You you call it an industry because I don't think that was the as much of the emphasis as the philosophy behind how we live our lives. Almost really, what I love so much about how we incorporate such a full life of those in our lives for life and for death to. To really be able to look at them with open eyes and open heart as a as a it's philosophy hard. and it's acceptance, hard. it's hard. It's not instant, and none of us do it. I no. mean, it's just a it's just a journey. And so when we accept that it's a journey rather than a, that I mean, of course there'll be de- definitions of of um, I'm obviously funeral homes is a huge industry. I'm not, and I and I hope that there are going to be more funeral celebrants because you're right. That's like the the actual commercialization of I guess. The reality of pain of, for of, things, ce- of, of celebrating of, of life, celebrating life, and doing it in that way is really interesting. And and I and I just again I want to emphasize that when we choose how we're living our lives and the people who can be around it, so true, we can become more aware and open, con- raise our consciousness around allowing those same things, those same people, the same things that we choose to be part of our death if we can, if we're lucky to choose that and we do this in advance. That's a certainly a takeaway from that interview. And for me, also understanding that there is such a parallel between uh, death and birth. And we celebrate birth, but you know we don't celebrate death. We don't talk about it. We're afraid of it. And it's definitely a paradigm shift for me. I, I have to be totally honest. I'm so glad. Thank you, Karen, for, for that shift. But I also want to say that we talk about beginnings a lot in the open nester stage. So this, to me, is a really poignant example of the fact that we never see death as a beginning. I mean, it's a closing, but we don't know the mystery and the mysticism of what's next. So just being we open don't. to that idea is what I'm hoping that this helps people start considering. Absolutely. And if you enjoyed this episode, please listen to some others on our website. Also, stop by our website, visit 
Give us some comments. Tell us what you think, as well as if you know of anyone that have some meaningful and relevant story to tell. We love to talk to them about interviewing on the Open Nester podcast. Go to the Open Nesters. That's the Open Nester with a V at the beginning, double A in the middle, and S at the end dot com. Love to hear from you. And thank you for following us and building our community on Instagram. It's growing. And our closed Facebook page where we have discussions. And I do want to say that if you can share this with someone who really needs it, you will be doing them a big service as well as helping your community of awareness grow. Amen to that. Till next time, this is Amir. And this is Tessa. And we will see you on the next episode. Ciao. You have been listening to the Open Nesters Podcast, a production of Kiwi Publishing and Media. Executive Producer, Tessa Crone. Music by Yoni Avi Patat. Audio Engineering by Lucid Sound. Web Design and Blogs, PJ Ewing. This podcast is available on all podcast platforms. To learn more about each episode and guest, please visit us at theopennesters.com. For questions or to be a guest on our podcast, email tessa at theopennesters.com.